0: What shall we say? (laughs) Is law sin? By no means. Rather, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, grabbing an opportunity from the commandment, produced me in every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, grabbing the opportunity through the commandment, deceiving me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good.
1: Did that which is good then become death of me by no means, rather an order that sin might be recognized as sin. It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. So does a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but the sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin is living me that does it.
0: (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Evils right there with me for in my inner being i delight in god's law but i see another wa- law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and and making me a prison prisoner of the law of sin at work within me what a wretched man i am who will set me free from this body of death thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord so then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Amen.
2: Thank you, children. That was wonderful. Uh, Good morning, Central West End Church. Uh, If you don't know who I am, my name is Matt Creasy. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at the church. So, for many years... My grandmother, I called her Grammy, uh, Grammy dealt with food, some really weird food allergies. There were just certain foods that when she ate them, would get, she'd get really, really sick. And over the years, what happened is that the number of foods that she was sensitive to got bigger. More and more foods got added onto the list, and her reaction to the foods got worse. And it got to a point where her life, she had to make some radical alterations to her lifestyle just to function throughout her day. It was really miserable for her, and it was miserable for us to watch her go through it, that she just had to make some really pretty serious life alterations just to kind of keep, th- keep the train going. Uh, but then one day, everything changed. She got breast cancer. I know, kind of like things went from bad to worse. And because, she, because of her diagnosis, she went into chemotherapy. Now, I don't know if any of you have gone through that or if you know someone who's gone through chemotherapy, but especially back then, chemo was, it still is brutal. I mean, it literally brought her to the doorstep of death. Like, we we weren't sure if she was going to make it or not just through the therapy, okay? But I'm happy to say it worked, and she lived for 10 years cancer-free after that. It was, you know, praise God. She's with Jesus now, but she got a whole chunk of life that she was given back to her. But something interesting happened. While the radiation was eradicating all the cancer cells from her body, along with a bunch of other healthy cells with it, it was also invisibly, unbeknownst to her, unbeknownst to the doctors, eradicating the source of her food allergies, such that when she was done with chemotherapy, suddenly she found she could start eating again. I'll never forget the day she came to us and just said, I got to eat pizza for the first time in years. It was like, she was like a little girl, just like, I got to eat pizza. It was great. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, you and I, we are a lot like Grammy. We have a problem, and it's so deeply embedded. It's entrenched into our very being so deeply that it feels like this is just the way life is. And most of us, are we think the only thing to do is to manage the symptoms, to just mitigate our misery on a day-to-day basis without realizing that the problem is killing us. Little bit by little bit, it is sucking the life out of us, and it will lead to your death. And not just your physical death, but your spiritual death, if it goes undealt with. But here's the good news. Our passage this morning shows us that is freedom from the problem that we all live with, but it's a cure that will bring us to the very doorstep of death. Are you willing to go there with me? Well, good. So, I'd like for us to break down our passage this morning into three points, three things. So, here's the three things I want us to see. I want us to see the law, the problem, and the war. If you're a note taker, you can write those three things down. The law, the problem, the war. Okay, so first the law. So if if you haven't been with us, we are in a sermon series through the middle chapters of the book of Romans. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And in these middle chapters, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, is addressing what it means to have new life in Christ. That's actually Paul's preferred way of talking about Christians. He doesn't, like, he doesn't call us Christians. He calls, says, hey, we are in Christ. But what does that mean, and what are the implications for being in Christ? Well, that's what he's been teasing out, okay? And one of the things that's shown up again and again is that being in Christ radically alters our relationship to the law. And what we saw last week is that we tend to have a dysfunctional relationship to the law, don't we? We're in a bad marriage with the law, uh, the moral law of God. We try to use the law to gain the love and acceptance and belonging that our hearts really long for, but inevitably all it ends up doing is crushing and oppressing us, and we end up just under its condemnation. Now, when making that assertion, making stating that truth, a, a just an inevitable response is, well, if if, we, if the law just ends up in this, puts us in this bad relationship, if we end up in this bad marriage with the law, let's just get rid of the law, right? Like, doesn't that just mean the law is the problem, and if we get rid of the law, everything's okay, right? And that's the question that Paul just right out of the gate addresses. He says, sh- you know, shall we say then, is the law sin? Meaning, we might paraphrase that, is the law the problem, right? And what's his reaction to that? by no means. Actually, in the original Greek, it's probably better translated, may it never be so. Right? Now, why is that? What's, what, what, what's the point of the law then? Okay, well, he goes on to say, for sin deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Okay, so then the law, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He goes on to say a little later on, it's, uh, here we go, Next slide. And it was used that the law was what is good. The sin used what is good, that's the law, to bring about my death. Okay, so then through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What's kind of Paul getting at? What's he saying about the law here? Well, I might summarize what Paul is saying about the law like this. The law is good and the law is lethal. The law is good and The law is lethal. Now, how can something be both good and lethal? Well, I'm gonna shout out to my friend Big Sue for giving me this illustration. I think it's a really good illustration. Uh, I think the best illustration to explain this is peanuts. You guys like peanuts? I love peanuts. I'm a, okay, full confession. I'm the guy that will eat peanut butter out of the jar with just a spoon. I'm just like, no shame. Just mm 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 so good. And peanuts are actually really, really good for you. They're high in B vitamins, which give you energy. They got good plant proteins, some good complex carbohydrates. They're easy. It's an easy crop to grow. They're they're great. They're delicious. They're nutritious. They're life-giving. Peanuts are good. But if you have a peanut allergy, they are also very lethal. Right? If you have a peanut allergy and you even touch a peanut, or if you touch something that touched a peanut a little while ago, you are at risk of having a reaction and then asphyxiating and dying. It's a pretty serious condition. right? But in this scenario, is the peanut the problem? No. There's nothing wrong with the peanut. The peanut is being peanutty, just like it was meant to be. The problem exists with inside the person with the allergy. There's something that has gone, there's a problem inside their body and that there's something inside of them that when they come in contact with the peanut, their body reacts like the peanut is some sort of horrible toxic poison and the reaction is so strong, their body begins to attack itself and putting them at risk of dying. In the same way, The law of God is good. And throughout the Bible, we are told how good the law of God is. In the book of Deuteronomy, right before the people of God enter the promised land, Moses is commissioning them, and he basically says, Guys, God has given you this law, and you have have today to choose between life and death, good and evil, and if you obey these commandments, they're not going to oppress you. They're not going to restrict your life. They are for your good, you will be blessed. You will live by them, right? The Psalms are filled with passages like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Or like this, the law of your, God's, mouth is better to me than thousands of gold or pieces of silver. We're, again and again and again, what we're told about the moral law of God is that it shows us what human flourishing looks like. It gives us a picture of what what I'm going to call the good life. A life that is beautiful. A life that is abundant. The life that you're like, yes, this is what it means to be a full, flourishing, abundant human being. That's the picture that the law gives us. But we have this problem. Such that when we come in contact with the law of God, something inside of us reacts to it as if it was this horrible, toxic poison. And we resist it. And we push it away. And that problem is killing us. What's that problem? Well, that's point number two, right? We just saw that the law is good and the law is lethal because we have a problem. All right? And what's that problem? Well, right out of the gate, Paul makes no bones about it. He names the problem as sin right? Now, let's be honest. Sin is one of those churchy words that we use. I mean, we had our confession of sin earlier. And as Christians, sometimes we we use it so much that we're, well, I'm just going to quote to you Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. You keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? We just say it a lot, but we don't always define it. What is What does sin mean? Well, I think if we went around the room, we'd all probably give some variation of, well, sin is when you do something bad, right? You tell a lie, that's a sin. You kill somebody, that's a sin. If you steal, right? Those are sins. And that's true. There is an, a, an action element of sin. There are sinful actions that we commit. That's true. But is that all sin is? Paul doesn't seem to think so, does he? I mean, if you look, there's this, like, sin is grabbing opportunities. It's uh, it's actually doing the thing. It's the thing, it's forcing Paul to do stuff he doesn't want to do. He says he's enslaved to it. It's imprisoning him. He like personifies it like it's this force in his life, like it's this power at work inside of him. And the part of Paul that has been enslaved to sin, that's controlled by sin, he calls the flesh. And he contrasts the flesh with his mind, his inner being, or in Greek it's the inner man, his inner person, right? Now, you might be tempted to think, okay, so what Paul is saying is that there's this part of us, it's our, our, our mind, our intellect, our reason, you know, our consciousness, and that's our soul, that's our spirit, and that's the good part. And then there's all this biological, fleshly, you know, body stuff with all of its needs and desires, and that's the icky part, that's the bad part, and so what we need is for our spirits to be set free from our bodies and to go to heaven, and that'll be great. The problem with that view is actually it has its roots in Greek philosophy, not in the Bible. The biblical testimony is that the God that made your mind also made your soul, he made your intellect, he also made your body and your heart and your bones, and he made the world that we live in, and he put it all together into one cohesive whole, and he called it all very good. So, what is Paul talking about the flesh Well, to understand that, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And if you've been here for a while, you're probably not surprised to hear me go there. All right, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 give us the beginning of history, all right? And then what we find out is that God creates the entire universe perfect. It's good. All of the plants, all of the animals, the stars, the sun, the moon, the weather, everything is in this beautiful, harmonious balance, where there's life and flourishing the world is the way it's supposed to be the way we want it to be and in the very center of all that beauty of all that life of all that harmony god places human beings made in his image now we do not have time to get into all the things about what does it mean to be made in the image of god but real quick just shorthand to be made in the image of god means we are like god We're not God. We're not completely 100% like God in every way, but we're like God in some unique ways. And because we are like God in these unique ways, we are capable of having a personal, intimate relationship with Him. Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. It says that God would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve every day and talk to them face to face. They had a personal relationship with Him. And that's not just a privilege they enjoyed. That was central to their identity as being his image bearers. But then something happened. Adam and Eve were told a lie. They were told by the serpent, God's holding out on you. You see, you think, you, you think he's giving you the good life? There's something far better that he's holding out. He's not giving to you. The really, the, the real good life that you want you, God's not going to give it to you. You have, the only way you're going to get that good life is if you take it into your own hands, okay? And they believed that lie, and they acted on that lie, and they ended up betraying God. They did the one thing He asked them not to do. And when that happened, Not only did it sever humanity's relationship with God, it was like that lie became this spiritual infection that has now entered into the very DNA of humanity. The flesh is Paul's way of saying human beings separated, disconnected from the life source of God. That's the flesh. And that spiritual infection, what is, what is what we call sin, what is it really at its heart? What it really is, is this infection that produces a disposition that doesn't trust God, that rejects God as the one who's going to give me the good life, who will provide the good life, that if I want the good life, the only person I can trust is me. We might say it like this, sin is the pervasive inner disposition to reject God and rely solely on self. Or for, the, for those of you who like didactic tools, I want to give you a... So what is sin? What is at the very, very heart and center of sin? I. I will define the good life. I will get the good life for myself. That is the heart of sin. And it touches every aspect of who we are. Did you notice the example that Paul uses? You know, he, when he's talking about the relationship between the law and our sin, he, ha, he picks a commandment. Now, there are 10 commandments to choose from, and there are actually other moral commands that God gave outside of the 10 commandments. Paul could have chosen any number of them, but he chooses the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. What does it mean to covet? To covet simply means to desire something that is not yours to have. There's no action involved in that. Just, it's a desire. Now, that runs against the way we tend to think. We tend to think like, well, desires, people can't help what they desire. You're just born with the things that you want. You can't help that. That can't be bad, right? But what's underneath that desire? Underneath that desire is a disposition that says, God will not give me the good life. So I better start looking for the good life for myself. And so we start looking around, and suddenly, you know, that guy's life seems pretty good. Sin has infected every aspect, every part of our personhood our desires, our thoughts. Yes, our actions, but also our emotions, our motivations. It, it's a full systemic infection. But here's the thing. We have this full-on systemic infection of sin, but we, as we saw last week, we also have the law of God written on our hearts, right? You guys remember when Eric said that last week, that We all, whether you're an atheist, whether you're an agnostic, a Christian, a Buddhist, a Hindu, or a White Sox fan, whatever you are, we all have this deep intuitive sense that there is an objective moral reality that exists outside of us. Even though our culture likes to say, well, who's to say we all kind of know, don't we? We all have this sense that there is a right and wrong. And so now what does that produce? We have the law of God written on our hearts and we're infected by sin. What does that produce? Well, that brings us to the last point, the war. We've seen the law. It's good and it's lethal because we have a problem called sin, which is that pervasive spiritual infection that leads to the disposition to reject God and rely solely on self. And that produces an inner war. Paul says we all live with a war inside of us. And he describes it like this. He says, for I do not do, Moses did a great job with this, by the way, didn't he? For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, right? I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Right? He's describing this this inner war, this inner turmoil. Now, again, you don't have to be a Christian to identify with what Paul's talking about. We all have the experience of inner conflict, don't we? We've all had the experience of, you know the right thing to do. You know it would be wrong to you know, fudge the numbers on your expense report at work, to scream at your children, to, you know, like, to indulge in pornography is, is bad, or to, or we know, you know, there's this good thing that I should do. I should help this person. I should get involved in this thing. We know it. You just know it but then it's like something takes hold of your body and suddenly you find yourself doing the very thing that you know you shouldn't do or not doing the thing you should do, right? And all of a sudden it's like there's this Court, there's like this whole group of people up in your head screaming at each other. One part's trying to make excuses. It's like, well, you know, they don't pay me enough at work, and gas prices are going up. And if if nobody really finds out, you know, nobody gets hurt. It's not really a big deal. Like I, I need to, you know, protect my family financially, right? Or you know, I know I shouldn't yell at my kids. I know it's damaging to their little brains and their little hearts. But you know, they just don't listen, do they? They never listen until you yell. So you gotta yell. I mean, right? Or the part, you know, I know that pornography really messes with your brain and it creates a really distorted view of sex and it makes, like, you know, it prevents you from making healthy attachments with other people and a lot of people in the pornography industry are actually sex slaves. They weren't there by their own volition and so it's bad, but, you know, really, I had a hard day at work and this week has been hard and a lot of people are depending on me and I just need something for me and this makes me feel good and as long as nobody finds out, it's really not that big of a deal, right? Or, you know, I could help them but I've got a lot of other things in my life. I really, you know, I just need to, I need to make sure that I am prioritizing the right things and that, you know, I can help them maybe another time, right? We start, we start coming up with excuses, but then that, it like amps up the other side that says like, you weak, pathetic person. You know that was wrong to do. You know you should have helped and you did it anyway. If anybody found out, they would be disgusted with you. How dare you get your act together, Nobody knows what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Right? Y'all watching y'all, you're like, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, we all know this. We all live with this inner conflict. Now, here's the thing as human beings, we don't like conflict, do we? We don't like conflict with other people, and we certainly don't like conflict internally. So, we will do just about anything we can to get away from conflict. Now this is not an exhaustive list. This is just, I think, a f- three of probably the most common ways that we as humans try to get away from the internal conflict. One, we deny it. What does that look like? Well, that looks like we learn a few highly effective habits. We learn, some, you know, we figure out some things that kind of you know, make our life function a little bit better. And we're able to, what we're able to do is kind of from a distance make it look like everything's good. Right, we we keep we make sure all of our sin stays below the waterline. Right, and then we we slap on our hashtag too blessed to be stressed face. We throw in some optimism and some positivity, and we just broadcast for the world to see. Hey, everything is great. I'm doing awesome. Everything is awesome. Right, but to maintain that. To, to keep ourselves and other people convinced that everything is awesome and there's, there are no problems here, and these aren't the droids you're looking for, we have to stay very, very surfacey. We have to keep everything light, everything happy, nothing, you can't dip below the waterline because that's where the war is raging. We have to keep all the people in our life at a nice social media distance, right? And we just keep smiling, everything's awesome. Right? but it doesn't actually deal with the war. It just denies it. The other thing we do is we reduce the law. We dumb it down. We shrink it down so that it becomes manageable. That, like, we we kind of shrink it down to the point of like, okay, I can, I can manage this a little bit. Now, religious people do this, don't we? we will, this is what the Pharisees did. It's why Jesus criticized them so harshly you know and we we christians we will do this we hyperfixate we focus on we kind of cherry pick the laws that we like we pick the commandments they're like i can do that i can do that i can do that and i'm going to ignore the other ones and i'm just going to focus on these few and i'm going to really really hone in on them i'm going to really obsess about them and then i'm going to use them like a bat to swing at other people and make them feel bad why do we weaponize the law of god that way well it's because we're trying to keep them from looking at the fact that we've ignored all these commandments over here and to reinforce to ourselves, like, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. But look, you don't have to be religious to do this. Let's be honest. You know, depending on which side of the political aisle you fall, you have certain virtues, certain values that you fixate on And that you really hone in on and that you use to reassure yourself that you're on the right side of history, that you're a good person, and it's all those people on the other side of the aisle that you can kind of turn your nose down at. Right? You've put a, if you're on the left, you've got a you know, Black Lives Matter poster in your window, you've got a rainbow sticker on your car, you made sure you put I'm vaccinated sticker on your social media page, and you kind of watch all of your threads just so that you can jump on that bigot, that sexist, that racist, that you know, whatever ist, and make sure that they know that they're a bad person and everybody else knows that you're a good person. Whew. Or maybe you're on the right, and you've got a Blue Lives Matter poster in your car. You've got a bumper sticker that says, the only thing that can stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun, you know? And you make sure that you never wear a mask to make sure everybody knows it's all a lie. And you make sure you hyper-watch all of your social media feeds to make sure you're going to jump on those, hype, those uh, uh, hypocritical, so, so self-righteous liberals and make sure they know that they're taking away our freedoms. Right? What are we doing? Are you a good person? No! You're not. You know why? Because you're not doing it for other people. You are on a committed PR campaign of your own goodness. It's all about you. And you're using the virtues that you say you believe in as a weapon. You're reducing the law. And it doesn't actually deal with the inner conflict, does it? Now, the third way we do this is we, we go full tilt and we reject the law altogether. This is kind of what Paul's addressing in the beginning of the passage. We just say, you know what, forget the law. Like, who came up with this law? This is a dumb law. It just makes us feel bad about us. Just get rid of it. Do whatever makes you feel good, right? If it feels so right, how could it be wrong, right? And our culture reinforces this and says, we have this cultural mantra, don't we? Everyone should be free to do whatever makes them happy. But here's the catch. As long as what? You don't hurt anybody else, right? And boy, that sure sounds good. That sure feels kind of freeing and liberating, doesn't it? The problem is always, and I'm telling you always, at some point when you live your life that way, what makes you happy will hurt someone else. And you're confronted again with the war within. And if you don't believe me, try and go find a long-standing, deeply committed, hedonistic community. They don't exist. And actually, all of these, if you notice, what do they lead to? One, they don't actually address the inner war. They don't actually get to the root of the problem. They just move around it. And two, they all lead to breakdown in relationships, distance, either emotional or actual separation from other people. So, what do you do about the war? Well, what does Paul do? Paul goes into the war he doesn't try to move away from it. He walks right into the fray and he examines the law of God and he really weighs it out and really examines it and says, okay, what, does, what is the picture of the good life really, what is the picture it's really painting for me? What does it actually require to be a full, functioning, beautiful human being? And what he finds is this picture of a person who is utterly and completely shaped by love, a life that is lived every day by utter radical love of God in every fiber of our being, and radical self-giving love of neighbor every day, all the time. And then he looks at his own life, and he, re- and he examines his motivations. He examines his desires. He examines his thoughts, his feelings, and what does he find? There's this chasm This giant, gaping hole, like bigger than the Grand Canyon, standing between his life and the good life he was made for. And it's so big. It's so vast. There's such a separation between what his life looks like and the life that he is really called to live as a human being. And what does it lead him to? It leads him to cry out, What a wretched man I am! Who will set me free from this body of death? He reaches the end of himself. The point of despair to say, I can't do it. This infection is so deep. I need medical treatment. This problem is so big. I need to be set free. I need to be rescued. Somebody please help me. And what's the very next thing out of his mouth? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He breaks out into praise. Now, does that seem weird to you? Why would he get to the point of utter despair and then suddenly burst into song praising God? Well, friends, it's only at the point when you've reached the end of yourself that you're able to receive the gospel. What? is the gospel. Well, I hope for those of you who've been coming here for any length of time, this would be like, you know this because we, we hammer it home all the time. The good news, the gospel is this, that the good life that you long for, that I long for, is not something that you get to through your moral performance. It is not something that you attain by leveraging some biblical principles in your life, by adopting some spiritual practices into your life. It's not something that you can get in and of your own path The good news of the gospel says the good life became a human being and he walked among us and he lived the life that you were supposed to live, that I should live. And he then, the one who knew no sin, became sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Friends, you don't have to run away from the inner conflict. You do not have to avoid it. You don't have to be afraid of it. Because when you really lean into it, when you really examine what the moral law of God requires and what is really going on inside of your heart, your mind, your desires, your thoughts, and all of those places, when you actually examine it and you see how great the chasm is, you will always find that the cross bridges the gap. And the bigger you let that chasm become, the bigger Jesus gets in your mind. So what do we do? Let me give you some practical stuff to walk away with. Maybe you're here and you know you're not a Christian. You're kind of exploring, okay, what is this faith stuff about? I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know if I believe in Jesus. Or all you know, If you're here and that's you, I would just encourage you, don't be afraid of radical self-examination. Radical self-honesty. Don't get below the waterline. really really let look go look at the bible go look at what the law of god requires the moral law of god requires and if you need help with that we we would love to help you with that and really examine your life maybe you're here and you thought you were a christian but you're hearing me talk like you know i thought being a christian meant i go to church i adopt some spiritual practices in my life i try to be a good person but what I'm hearing you say is that's not good enough. You're right. I am saying that. It is not good enough. Friend, you need to be set free. Okay? And I would encourage you, do the same thing. Radical self-examination, radical self-honesty, and don't be afraid of it. Because that inner struggle will inevitably lead you to the end of yourself, which leads you in the perfect position to receive Jesus, the only one who can actually set you free from that inner war. Now, what about the rest of us? What about those of us here who you're in Christ? You've been set free from the power of sin, and you're like, but Matt, I still kind of resonate with what Paul's saying. (laughs) Like, uh, that that chasm has been bridged, but I still experience this inner war. What what do I, well, let me me say to you what Paul's words from a different letter, the letter of Galatians. Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to continue in the flesh? Do you really think that now that you've been set free from the power of sin in your life, that by the grace of God given to you through the Lord Jesus, do you really think that you're going to eradicate the presence of sin in your life through your own self-effort? The same Jesus who sets you free from the power of sin is the same Jesus at work in your life right now, eradicating the presence of sin, is the same Jesus who will come back and radically cleanse the new heavens and new earth of all sin and all evil and all death forever and ever. So, the struggle that you feel, you don't have to be afraid of it. The battle is won. That feeling, those, that painful feeling, that is not the symptoms of an active infection that's killing you. That is the feeling of God Almighty eradicating sin in your life. When you feel that inner conflict, praise His name. Friends, the law of God is good. Whew, and it's lethal and painful because we have a problem a systemic spiritual infection called sin that leads to this disposition that shows up in every bit of our life where we want to reject God and instead rely on ourselves. But this produces an inner war, an inner war that if we're willing to walk into, we will find in the midst of that war the one who can set us free. He has, he can, and he will let me pray. Father, thank you that your love is so deep and so wide and so broad that you know the very depths of our sin. You know how twisted our thoughts, our desires, our motivations, our emotions, even all of the places that sin hides, that if we were to see it in full right now, we would be struck down in horror. But you see it, and it does not bother you. It does not scare you away. It draws you in, so much so that you gave us yourself through the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you became sin on the cross for us, and I thank you for that. And I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would empower us by your spirit to move in deeper and deeper into the war so that we might experience more and more of the freedom that is only given to us through your victory, Lord Jesus. May your name be made much of in this place and in our lives. And in your name I ask, amen.